This is a piece by a guy named Larry Taunton. Larry who? Never heard of her. What sort of a man is he? Pick from Bama. A man like any other, but more so. Well, I thought he was dead. This is the Larry Alex Taunton Show. Let's light this candle. Welcome to the Larry Alex Taunton Show. I am Amy Beth Shaver, here with Larry Taunton. How are you? I'm doing very well, and um, I have to just begin by saying, I am so dreadfully colorblind, you're going to laugh when I say this, but I keep thinking I'm wearing a burgundy shirt. (laughs) (laughs) Do you really? I really do. Several times, I just now saw the monitor, and I thought, gosh, Lori told me that I was wearing, she, she, she wanted me to wear navy, and I thought, for some reason, she's put me in burgundy, and I would swear I'm wearing burgundy, but... It, it's not. I can assure you that is navy blue. Anyway, whatever. So I mean, who knew? But we coordinate. So. Truth I is, mean, what I say go. that it is. <laughs> <laughs> According to popular culture, yes, hundred <laughs> yes, percent. This is my truth. <laughs> <laughs> sure, sure it is, hon. Okay, so how's your week? It's pretty good. Uh, my week was good, and I have to begin by saying that last night, Lori and I watched it. Your recommendation uh, that you and Chris had recommended this um, movie. We watched Father Stew. Did you like it? I did. And you had emphasized, um, yeah, because I was under the impression, and maybe maybe just because of the posters I've, I've seen uh, advertising it, and because I think of the, the type of role that Mark Wahlberg typically plays, I thought it was a comedy. And you had said, no, 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 no. He definitely goes through a really, really hard redemption story. So I'm waiting for, you know the tragedy to come and then he gets hit by a car and that lasts like a millisecond and he's fine. And I was like, was that it? Was that the, yeah. was that the tragedy that you were speaking of? I and mean, we won't give any real spoilers here, but I will say that for the first, maybe half to possibly two thirds of the movie, I didn't really know where it was going, but the payoff was, was, was terrific. Um, I was powerfully moved I had to leave the room to avoid sobbing um, because that's just that's just me. Um, I'm, I'm a passionate guy, and I saw what he was going through. I saw what she was going through, um, and you're you're right there with him. So I thought it, well, I thought it was very powerful. I'd recommend people watch it. I say this with a little warning that we can run across the bottom of the screen. The language is rough. <laughs> But I liked that they included it because they're trying to tell the authentic story of who this guy is. And I think I think you have to have that in there to get the feel for how um, you know, rough this this character's background was. Yeah. Uh, that that's how Chris described it was he was not normally, you know not polished. It is not polished at all. It is very raw. Yeah. But it was authentic, and he felt like in order to tell that story the way it should have been told, which I thought they did an amazing job, that it had to include that because that was really who he was. Mm-hmm. And then you begin to fully appreciate what happens by the end of the story. But I'm I'm thankful that y'all liked it because it's always kind of a trepidatious thing to recommend a movie because what if you hated it and you're like, never come back. No, no, no. I, I, I liked it. So <laughs> be off. send more recommendations uh, our so way. I, I'm thrilled and I'm thankful. And I hope that people again, with that language warning would enjoy it because it was the same for us. I just was very moved and still 
think one of the homilies that he gave kind of toward the end was phenomenal. I thought so too. And With uh, Mel Gibson. I didn't even know Mel Gibson was in it. I didn't either. I love Mel Gibson. Oh, we do too. Huge fan. I thought he was powerful in that story. I was glad he didn't have that beard too. I thought, I know, was like, you know, that, that beard, I'm like, lose the, lose the beard, on, Mel man. Gibson, or at least trim it down. Yeah. Um, but yeah. I uh, I thought it was uh, I thought it was very good and it's interesting because when I was writing this book right here, the faith of Christopher Hitchens, this was a, a little bit of a fight with um, Harper Collins. Really? Because uh, no, a good a, a good one, but I told them I need to include uh, I need to include the real language, and they said, well, we don't allow any you know any cussing in you know in in, in, in the books, and I said, but if I don't. Christopher Hitchens is going to come off as this charming unbeliever, which he could be, by the way, right. um, at times. But he could also be just incredibly crass and blasphemous and so on. And I think people need to feel that. I, I think they need to feel that. And so there was this tug of war, you know, mm -hmm. back and forth because they, they wanted me to airbrush him. And I didn't want to airbrush him. I wanted people to have the raw you know, real right. Christopher Hitchens um, and uh, in, in the process of writing that. But anyway, this film, I would, uh, I would strongly recommend it. I think it, it has, particularly when you get to the, to the end for the first half or two thirds, you're, you're not sure. And in fact, even Lori said to me, maybe halfway through the movie, this isn't my kind of movie. And by the end of the movie, she was saying something very, very different. Yes. Very different. So no, I thought it was terrific. Thank you for the recommendation. And thank you for the recommendation for the terminal list. We ah, binged did, it. Did, did you did did you watch it? I watched it. Did you like it? I loved it. Did you? Okay. I I, I was sure Chris would like it. But he uh. loved it. <laughs> um, and I I was I'm glad that Lori let me know that the beginning you know what was going to happen because you sit there and you're like oh my word. But can it I, in the first five minutes can, you don't care about. Can those I people. commit to this? <laughs> but then what I thought they did a good job of was kind of weaving her back in, and so you really believed the love that they had yeah. and what was going on. But yeah. thank you for that recommendation because now we're like, what are we going to do now? What's our purpose? I have another one for you, but okay. um, uh, that I uh, have, have thought was pretty good that someone, again, these are spy thrillers, yes. so I like some of that these. We enjoy that. It is with Jeff Bridges, and it is called The Old Man. Oh, okay. It's a brand new series, and John Lithgow is in it, and he or Lithgow, I don't know. What, I enjoy what him very much. He's very good in this. Jeff Bridges is fantastic. And it's way better than the terminal list. Really? Yes. Tell Chris okay. he must see that. It's called okay. the it's called the old man. But again, the this is not a Christian film. This is just a this is just a right. Clancy esque kind of kind of spy thriller with Jeff Bridges, who and I'll just say this much: he plays like an, a, a former CIA agent who is trying to live off the the grid, and you're not sure that he's not crazy because he seems paranoid, and then you begin to realize. He's not crazy, but it's uh, but it's good. It's interesting. Okay, I can't wait to watch that. Thank you for yep, that recommendation. Yep, yep. Lots of people get killed. Okay, well, you know what? In <laughs> real life, also, so there's that. Um, but you know what? It's interesting. I feel like with the spy genre and with with what's going on in the world right now, your eye, after watching The Terminalist, so many things made sense. Yeah, well, actually, I thought I'm surprised that they're showing this. Because I thought, whoops, got to turn off my volume on that. I thought this is um, this actually to me kind of resonates with what mm -hmm. is going yes. on in the world. Yes. Um, I, I thought this is a very conservative take 
on something that maybe Clancy would have written 30 years ago, this conspiracy theory, you say, ah, this is alternate universe, wouldn't happen in America. Now you watch it and go, no, this is happening in yes, America. Yes, absolutely. This is what's going on. Absolutely. Yeah. Yep, I'm with you. Okay, well, thanks. So there you go. Um, and y'all, let us know what you think about what we think about the movies and the shows that we watch and possibly, hey, what about the themes you take from them? That's interesting because I think that's one place where we can all come together. Yep. Um, you know, helps form Alabama our football. thinking. Well, Alabama th roll tide. Let's just have a moment. We haven't had a roll tide moment in a little bit. <laughs> uh, okay, Larry, I know that it is um, it's not going to surprise you that I sideswiped my car this week. So there's that. I'll have to keep you updated on the how do you hit oh, 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 and oh, I have what, to say this. What? I have, and you're not the sort of woman who will be um, offended by this. I have a bumper sticker for you that Chris Shaver, after this, <laughs> I saved it and I was going to give it to you. And I thought, I don't know if Amy Beth will like this or not. Maybe she'll be insulted by this. But in Ukraine, Lori found it this past week. In Ukraine, you see all these cars. Do you know what I'm about to say? You see all these cars <laughs> with a triangle on them and a high heel. And I was saying, oh, yes. so I'm talking to my translator one day, and I said, what does this mean? And he says, oh, they're for women drivers. And I said, why? And he said, well, because I, as a man, if she does something stupid, I might be inclined to yell at her. But when I see that, I know it's a woman, and I go, okay, I understand. <laughs> This is brilliant. This is, look. It is so funny. It is so sexist, but it is so funny. You know what? And I so own Lori, that. Lori found one this past week, and um, and I said, oh, I can't believe it. I said, this is just a gem because I bought them, you know, I bought a bunch of them just for fun when I was in Ukraine years ago. I can give you one of those to put on your car. Chris Shaver Please. will love that, and particularly after you've hit a fire hydrant or something. Was water spraying everywhere? Well, Let's just say that we backed out of a tiny parking lot, and I'm not really sure how I didn't see the. And you drive an bright, aircraft carrier. I drive an aircraft carrier. That's because it's my job. <laughs> and I backed out because I was in a hurry doing all of the things that we women do. And uh, we were on our way to dinner. So I had to tell Chris at dinner on our dinner date hey, by the way, babe, um, I just sideswiped a, a fire hydrant in the parking lot. Uh, thankfully, the people who repair our cars know us. <laughs> and they're like, you want to bring her in Monday? Yes, I do. Please. I need the aircraft carrier to do all of my things. So uh, I would like the sticker. Uh, Chris probably Remind me would like to put it over. front and center in the back they're of hilarious. my car. Uh, because that's my life and my family. He's actually sent around a meme about me because I, I think every family by now has a family group chat. Yeah. Um, and I'm, I'm the subject this morning. Well, there we go. I think, uh, <laughs> I I think we'll, have to, we'll have to give you I one. Own it. And uh, the fact is, you know, that I'm sure this is true of Chris Shaver and myself. I I've hit my fair share of fire hydrants. I mean, not literally fire hydrants, but yeah, I, I, I cannot claim that my wife has had more fender benders than I have. That so, makes me uh, feel better because that was his immediate response. Yeah. Because it, with his last car, we, in fact, it was such a trouble for him to drive because it was so low. Yeah. We were like, forget it. We got to sell the car. Yeah. So, you know, it's a thing. Yeah. First yeah. world problems. Yeah, those kind of cars are fun for a, a week. And then you're like, okay. Yeah. <laughs> you're like, yeah, let's back to reality. Let's, uh, well, let's, Realville. Realville that's, that's, the that's the kind of car you want when you're 18. And then when you can afford it at 45, you get it and you go, you know, this isn't all that it was cracked up to be. One, one should never meet their childhood heroes. No, not ever. Yep.
I love that. All right. So you know what? After the break, um, we have an ABS segment. I hope that you will enjoy. Um, and in fact, it was 10 years in the making. So stay tuned. ABS, Automatic Braking System, also known as Amy Beth Shaver, pumps the brakes. Welcome back. Okay, Larry, I'm just going to thank you in advance for the ABS moment. Okay. Um, I think our audience knows by now that you invented just for me, and I thank you very much for that, the moment where we put on the automatic braking system. Yeah, that's right. Amy Beth Shaver, automatic braking system, which should have been used before you hit a hydrant. But, <laughs> it <been>. but anyway. <laughs> and it didn't. And I never and did get an answer to my question as to whether or not water was spewing everywhere. You know but what? I, water I, but, wasn't. But if, okay, well, that, that just wrecks it for me because I wanted to, I wanted to picture the car hitting and you know, water going everywhere. But what is the ABS moment of the week? Now, let's put it this way. Do you remember when your kids were small? Yes. And perhaps there was a parent that would run up to you and need to tell you something <laughs> about your child. In love. <laughs> in love. Um, in charity. Yeah. In thoughtfulness. I, I can think of moments like that. Now, look. We're very aware our kids are rotten sinners. I am a rotten sinner saved by grace. I'm very aware of who I'm living with. But there are times as a parent when another parent is acting as tattletale. Yeah, yeah. Which, were we those kids in fourth or fifth grade? Perhaps. I don't know. But a mom runs up to me, this is years ago, and says, you know, your little five-year-old dumpling said a cuss word. And you should be, you should be very careful about her. I just wanted to warn you about her behavior. And immediately, I'm in a basketball gym. Of course, it didn't sit right with me. And I yeah. thought, you know, like I know her, but I, we're just going to talk about this and just say, hey, little one, at the time, just watch your mouth, please. And she was like, what? What are you saying? So yesterday in the kitchen, I say, do you remember? the time that you were playing with these little girls in the gym and apparently you cussed. And she was like, mom, that kid asked me my favorite cuss word. And I told her, <laughs> and she also then told me mine. I said, so the mom didn't know the second part. And she said, oh no, she didn't hear her little girls and what they said. They only asked me mine and I didn't even know what I was saying. And I was like, I knew it. I knew it. Something else happened with another child that her mother was very quick to run to me to <laughs> warn me about my middle school child and what was going on in her life. And then it turns out that their child was bullying our child and it had dramatic repercussions um, in our family's life. So my ABS segment this week is recognize, stay in your lane. <laughs> stay in your lane. Make sure you have all the facts as a parent. Yes, be humble and be willing to hear what other parents have to say, but just be careful before you're running to another parent to tattletale on that child. <laughs> Make sure you include anything about your child in that conversation as well. If you, uh, if this reminds me of, in fact, it's almost an exact parallel um, to the scene in um, Christmas Story. Uh, I don't know if you remember Christmas Story, but Darren McGavin and you know, the little, you know, the blonde-headed kid, um, Ralphie. Yes. And um, and he he is uh, he is in trouble because a <laughs> a neighbor um, woman um, you know says um, that you know that her son had said a cuss word and it was from Ralphie 
and then you hear, you know, th- th- this conversation going back and between the parents, and you hear the woman on the other end of the phone going, "What? What?" <laughs> because you say, "My kid said what?" And then you hear, you hear the boy being beaten in the background, yeah. "Mom, Mom, what did I do?" And then Ralphie's got a bar of soap in his mouth. Yes. Yep. This is uh, this is this is very much like that moment. Parents, when they they feel like another parent is judging their child. There's no quicker way for them to get their back up yes. than that because it, 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 it accomplishes two things. It's not only that you're now judging my child, but you are, you are now in my lane as a parent. Yes. So, you, boy, yeah, I would definitely say, you know, be careful. Be careful there. I want to tell my oldest child who will listen to this podcast, remember that as you parent. (laughs) Um, But she also knows because she was the brunt of many of those things. But you're right. It is one of those questions. What are you looking for out of that conversation? What was her favorite cuss word? I have to know. I didn't know that we ranked them that way. (laughs) Hell was her as a five-year-old. And she said, Mom, I, I really didn't know what I was saying. Obviously, she's older. She knows now. But at the time, she said, I just said it. And then, of course, you know, she said, but I didn't know. Um, but, you know, looking, <laughs> looking back, I, I want to ask myself this question and other parents is what are we looking for out of those interactions? Because yeah. you're right. Is it like to feel better about yourself as a parent because, oh, my child didn't do that or I'm going to leave this out? Yeah. Uh, or, you know, is it, is it to correct the behavior? And, and even then, I think you've got to tread lightly because you're dealing with someone else's child and you most certainly do not have all of the yeah. facts. I'm, so I'm with that's you on that. a little more serious ABS moment, but literally was 10 years in the making and one of those like motherly instincts that at the time had to wait 10 years for it. But yeah. It was very satisfying in the end. Yep, I'm with you. So there you go. You know, it's very basic. It's a good, it's a good moment. So how about this? Why don't, before we go to a break, talk about the overview for our topic this week, yeah. which is outstanding. What, what's the title? Yeah, today we're talking about um, moral chaos theory, how Romans 1 explains everything. We're seeing so much that's taking place in the culture that, that, that people are very confused by it, uh, understandably, because they're seeing the sexualization of children there, the tra- transgender nonsense that's absolutely everywhere. We've just come out of you know, I don't know if they even call it gay pride anymore. It's just pride month because it's now more than being gay. It's LGBTQ, you know, plus alphabet soup. Uh, We were subjected to that for a month where, you know, that, that crap was everywhere. And, uh, and you're seeing what's happening in the schools, um, where, you know, all of this is, is going on and we're seeing rioting in our street. We're seeing a sharp increase in violence, um, we are we are witnessing moral chaos, moral chaos. And I want to, this isn't, listen, this show isn't scriptural exposition. That's not what this show is. It's not, not what we would, would say is normal fare. But today it is. Um, today, because I think it's so relevant, I, I have given Romans chapter 1, verses 18 through 32, so much thought over the years um, that I just think this passage is so relevant and it is the key to understanding what's going on in the culture. So that's what we're going to talk about. I cannot wait to talk about it. I, I, you have your Bible out. This is serious. I feel bad that I didn't bring mine. (laughs) Well, I didn't tell you to. (laughs) (laughs) I'll bring it next time. Uh, But I really am very excited to to delve into this because when I was reading the article beforehand, actually, I read it a couple weeks ago. 
I was just out loud like, yes, this makes so much sense. Send in the clowns. Send in the clowns. It makes sense. That's the name of that article, by it, the way. It, it, which, by the way, was a great title for the article. I appreciate that. So we'll take a break and then be right back so that we can dive in. Perfect. All right. This is the Larry Alex Taunton Show. Larry is my favorite player. Welcome back. So, Larry, you describe in your article, Sending the Clowns, that this passage is often overlooked, uh, Romans 1. Yeah, I, I, I think, or, or let me put it this way, I feel like this passage is often not mined for all that it has to offer. Now, I guess we could say that of, you know, of maybe any passage uh, in the Bible, but just coming from from the perspective of a historian, I've often been fascinated by this passage because, and let me just read it. And we won't, we again, we won't typically do this, but some of you are driving in your cars, or you're you're listening as you're you're out exercising, or as you're getting ready in the morning. So you know you're probably not going to whip out your Bible. So let me let me read this to you. For the wrath of God is revealed from heaven against all ungodliness and unrighteousness of men who. Uh, by their unrighteousness, suppress the truth. For what can be known about God is plain to them, because God has shown it to them. For his invisible attributes, namely his eternal uh, power and divine nature, have been clearly perceived ever since the creation of the world in the things that have been made. So they are without excuse. For although they knew God, they did not honor him as God or give thanks to him, but they became futile in their thinking and their foolish hearts were darkened. Claiming to be wise, they became fools and exchanged the glory of the immortal God for images resembling mortal man and birds and animals and reptiles. Therefore, God gave them up in the lusts of their hearts to impurity, to the dishonoring of their bodies among themselves, because they exchanged the truth about God for a lie and worshiped and served the creature rather than the creator, who is blessed forever. Amen. For this reason, God gave them up to dishonorable passions. For their women exchanged natural relations for those that are contrary to nature. And the men likewise gave up natural relations with women and were consumed with passion for one another. Men committing shameless acts with men and receiving in themselves the due penalty for their error. And since they did not see fit to acknowledge God, God gave them up to a debased mind to do what ought not to be done. They were filled with all manner of unrighteousness, evil, covetousness, malice. They are full of envy, murder, strife, deceit, maliciousness. They are gossips, slanderers, haters of God, insolent, haughty, boastful, inventors of evil, disobedient to parents, foolish, faithless, heartless, ruthless. Though they know God's decree that those who practice such things deserve to die, they not only do them, but give approval to those who practice them. Now, note that Paul alternately speaks in past tense, though they knew. And then he says, those who practice them. So he's speaking, he's alternately speaking in past tense and present tense. Um, you know, I often wondered, who is he talking about here? Um, is this a reference, you know, to the to the Greeks? You know, the uh, the the ancient Greeks, the classical Greeks. You know, their their empire collapsed due to similar types of corruption. Is this a is this a um, a reference to the Persian empire? Is it is it a reference to the Rome of his day? Well, I, you know, I, I think 
it's it's a reference to many things. But you know, if you go and look at Ezekiel chapters eight through eleven, um, which are arguably some of the most difficult chapters in Scripture, um, they are very very difficult uh, um, uh, chapters. You you feel a bit like you're swimming in grits, but there you see the Hebrews themselves, that is the Israelites doing all the things that he's talking about here, that the elders of, uh, you know, God's, God's priests, um, um, the priesthood are themselves leading people in the worship of animals and birds and reptiles and this kind of stuff. And then, um, you know, God judges them and uh, he sends into uh, into Jerusalem what I refer to as the you know the Avengers you know not 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 the the Marvel comic ones but like real honest to goodness Avengers six angels uh, who are sent in and, and prior to that an angel goes around and he marks the foreheads of those they are not to kill those who are mourning and lamenting the moral chaos right. of the Israelites then these Avengers come in and God tells them in effect. Start at the altar. In, in other words, kill the priests first because these are the ones who have led people into this idol worship. These are the ones um, who are guilty of, um, they're the ones who are supposed to be leading people in authentic worship. You know, James tells us, you know, teachers will be judged more harshly. And boy, were they. You know, God says, you know, in effect, when you go into the city, kill everybody uh, but those who have the mark upon their forehead and start with the priesthood first. So is Paul here speaking? Probably. He's speaking of his own people. Now, when I have made, when I posted the article that you're referring to um, called Send in the Clowns, um, that, that is a discussion of this, and you can find it um, on, uh, on our website at LarryAlexTaunton.com uh, under the Full Fathom 5 blog. Um I, when I posted that on on Twitter, I had people saying to me, "You do realize Romans one isn't prophecy, don't you? You know these these kinds of things." Well, my point isn't that it's prophecy. My point is that it has a kind of uh, um, predictive quality because what Paul is talking about here in Romans one, he's not simply saying this is what they did. Paul is giving us in Romans one. A, um, a blueprint for where any culture will go when it goes off the rails. And let me give you an example of this. You know, when, uh, when in other words, you can predict exactly what's coming yeah. next. And that's why I think this, you know, when I say that Romans 1 explains everything, you can familiarize yourself with this passage, people, and it will give you a confidence that you know what's happening in the culture and where it's going in the broad strokes. Mm -hmm. And, and an example that I might use, <clears throat> uh, an analogy I might use to, to explain this, when Lori and I were in the process of, of adopting Sasha, uh, law required, international adoption law, you know, established at The Hague or something, required that we have, I think, 30-some-odd hours of adoption education. So we went to, um, in, in Birmingham, University of Alabama, Birmingham, uh, UAB, they have an adoption clinic there, and for X number of Saturdays, we would go down there um, to receive, you know, lectures and powerpoints and all this stuff 
about adoption. Now, some of it was not helpful, but some of it was absolutely fascinating. Mm. And they're preparing you. Um, yeah, I don't know how they would do it now, but I felt they did a very good job because I think there are a lot of parents who adopt because they want to be heroes. They want to be a child's hero. They read a book like The Grace Effect and say, you know, I want a Sasha. I had people, you know, say that to me. We, we, we want a Sasha too. Well, we would always try to caution people. Do understand this is a hard process. Yes. This is a very hard process. And we, you're not adopting an infant, but you're adopting an older child. There's a lot of baggage that comes with that child. It's not their fault. Um, they're coming out of abused, neglected circumstances. They wouldn't be adopted if, if, if it were otherwise. And so the adoption clinic, they gave you lectures on things like fetal alcohol syndrome. This is what it looks like. This is, this is the way this plays out. And this isn't exactly right, but one of the things that, that they did that just blew me away was they were showing predictive behaviors based on the kind of abuse wow. that child had suffered. Like they can, they can predict the outcome with relative certainty. So for instance, again, somebody out there will, will probably know what I'm talking about and maybe remember more specifically, but it went something like this. If, if a child has been locked in dark spaces, like say a closet, they will scratch and sniff. They will do this. They will scratch themselves and sniff everything because of sensory deprivation until they bleed. A child who's been left in a crib, as for instance, as Sasha was, um, because you maybe have one caregiver to, let's say, 30 babies. So what does someone do in that circumstance? Well, they prop bottles. You know, They can't hold each mm -hmm. child, so they prop bottles. And they say those children um, often have dyslexia. And you go, why? Because they um, don't develop depth perception. Those things, it turns out, that, that hang over a crib and, and turn right. actually serve a very important function. They help a child develop the ability to focus on something as it's moving and then look beyond it to the, you know, to the, to the roof, or to, to the ceiling, um, to look back to something, and it develops eye muscles. But without that, a child just left in a crib looking at a, at, at a ceiling all day long doesn't develop those muscles. And they often, uh, they often have dyslexia and they often have, um, uh, I'd say a wandering eye, you know, something, something like that. So they could predict this and then they would just go straight down the line. You know, a child who, um, um, has never has not been put on the floor regularly, develops um, a, a certain type of brain disorder because the hemispheres aren't communicating oh, with goodness. each other because they didn't have this motion of being on the floor, which apparently helps that your, your the both hemispheres of your brain to connect. So the point being, some evil scientist could, as the theory goes make a child become a scratch and sniffer by locking them in a closet. You, you see what I'm saying? Right. And it, it wasn't simply they might do this. They will do it. It's what happens. Somehow it's like, it's like if, if we had flip top heads, you know, somebody could just open your head and take a screwdriver in there and scramble things. And it, it, it brings about certain predictive behaviors. Well, Romans chapter one is like that. It is saying when you suppress the truth of God, 
These are the things that will happen. It isn't that the culture might go off the rails. It will go off the rails. Mm. And it will go off the rails in this way, in this pattern. There are, you know, there, there's, there's, there's a, a, a direction that it will flow. So when you were writing this and thinking about it, what were, after we look at Romans 1, as you've explained it, as you've read it, what were the things that just jumped out at you immediately in regards to our culture? Um, well, I'd love to say it jumped out to me immediately. I'd, <laughs> I'd have to think, and listen, there are people who've thought on this all, right. I'm sure, way more than I have and, you know, have mined things from it that I've yet to mine from it. Right. Um, but over the course of, of decades of, of thinking on this passage, um, something that strikes out, uh, uh, really jumps out to me is is this for the wrath of God is revealed from heaven against all ungodliness and unrighteousness of men who by their unrighteousness suppress the truth mm. for what can be known about God is plain to them because God has shown it to them and then it goes on to say so they are without excuse mm. now I remember when I was first entering um, uh, seminary years years ago um, that a little test was given just to kind of, you know, see what your Bible knowledge, um, was uh, one of the questions, an essay question was uh, what happens to, and it was, it's sort of this, it's, it's deliberately a kind of, um, stock question that is often asked, what happens to the heathen in Africa who has never heard the gospel? Does he go to heaven or does he go to hell? Uh, this has been an ongoing debate in, uh, in Christianity for two millennia. Um, well, Romans chapter one says everyone is without excuse. And you say, well, how can that be? How can everybody be without excuse? I mean, what if this poor guy has never heard of Jesus Christ? Well, according to this, that's actually not true. God reveals himself to man in two ways. He reveals himself in, um, in creation. So natural revelation is, is, is the term that is... Is, uh, is the theological term, meaning that creation itself, as Psalm 19 says, you know, it, it proclaims the glory of God. Right. It moves you to metaphysical questions. Right. You know, Psalm 8, David says, when I consider the moon and the stars, which thou hast ordained. You know, and in other words, David is saying, you know, as he's a shepherd boy and he's laying on that hillside and he's looking up at the stars and he doesn't have the distractions that we have now. He doesn't have an iPod on. He's... He's not watching, you know, um, you know, the terminal list on his <laughs> right. on his on his uh, smartphone. Um, it's just him and and the sky and right. uh, and and the sounds of nature. And his mind moves to metaphysical questions. You know, who am I that that God would would create this and that He cares about me? Is yes. what Psalm eight. Is saying we've all felt that when you're standing, you know, on the beach and you feel the, the power of the surf, you know, and the, the waves coming in and you know lapping at your feet, and you're watching a sunset or you're 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 feeling that breeze and something about that. That there's natural revelation in that. It moves a child to the metaphysical questions. You know that there must be a God, and this is why this is why the psalmist says twice. The fool says in his heart, there is no God. Because it takes, it's, it, children never, 
posit that. Children don't come to that question, that place on their own. They have to be taught there's no God because children, according to Dr. Olivera Petrovich, a uh, research psychologist at, at uh, Oxford University, a delightful woman, um, by the way, and uh, who I talk about at some length in um, The Grace Effect, she says that children are born theists. You know, so children are born with a predisposition to believe in God. I want to be clear. They're not born Christians. They're born theists. But she says that, you know, they, they, they have a certain kind of natural theology that they're born with. Um, and then they have to be instructed. And uh, they reach a certain age of enculturation which may be eight or 10 or so, where they begin to take on the views of their culture. So Japanese children may become fairly atheistic, you know, because that's a, that's a very, very secular society, but it's not the way they're born. Mm. And, um, you know, children in Muslim countries, they're not born Muslims. They're born believing in, in, in a higher power. They're born in believing in God, and they maybe later become Muslims. But, um, but anyway, so Romans chapter 1, it, what jumps out to me is that it doesn't say here that men who didn't know that there was a God mm. arrive at this conclusion and pour them because they just didn't know any better. They didn't know right. there was a God. No, the uh, Paul is saying men actively suppress belief in God. They actively suppress mm. it. Mm. So they have to they they have to do that because their nature, God is planted in each one of us kind of a little black box that says that he's there. So again, the two types of revelation, there's natural revelation. The second is special, you know, revelation. And that of course is when someone tells you about Jesus Christ. But, you know, going ahead in, in this passage just a bit, and we're, you know, we're, we're not going to go to Romans two, but Romans chapter two fifteen says that God has written his law upon the hearts of men. Yes. So Christopher Hitchens, um, the aforementioned, you know, Christopher Hitchens. Christopher Hitchens thought that that he had a real winning argument when he would say, I mean, does anybody really think that it was a profound moment when Moses came down from Sinai and presented people with the Ten Commandments? You think people didn't already know that stuff? And I would say, Christopher, you're actually making a Christian point, whether you know it or not. Hmm. Because you think that... Um, that the Bible is arguing that men just had no sense of what was right or wrong until the Ten Commandments were given. God was simply in a codifying externally what he had already written upon their hearts. Of course they knew. They knew that murder and theft was wrong That's right. because God had already written it there. So Paul is saying it, at the beginning of this that it takes, and it's, it's why the psalmist says, you're a fool, um, to deny the existence of God because you act, you have to actively deny your own nature, your own nature screaming out, no, there is a God. And you're going, you're, you're playing whack-a-mole and you're knocking that down and you're going, nope, 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 not going to believe that. But your nature keeps telling you that it is. And that's why there are some people who will argue, some apologists, I, I'm not sure that I agree with them in this, having engaged so many atheists and so many famous atheists um, at length, they will say, well, there's no such thing as an atheist. Mm, no, I think there is, but there's no such thing as a born atheist. You have to work at it, and you um, you have to you know actively you know tell yourself there isn't a God. So we're going to take a break, but when we come back, let's let's take this apart. What does this look like in our culture? I think we know, 
But I think places that you took us in this article are fascinating, and we're going to talk about it right after this. This is The Larry Alex Taunton Show. Welcome back. So, Larry, let's talk about chaos in the culture. What does it look like? Yeah, um, you know, it's interesting because a, a generation ago, the debate, the kind of the big cultural debate between, you know, believers and unbelievers, and in, in, in within even some religious communities, the question was, when does life begin? Meaning that there was a kind of <clears throat> sense in which, let's say, you know, when, when we were kids, that in the broad strokes, our culture, believers and unbelievers alike, shared a common worldview. A- again, I mean that in, 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 in the right. broad strokes, right. that we would say that often, you know, secular television, you'd watch a TV show like Hawaii Five O, you know, the old one, or Cosby or something like that. These aren't Christian shows, but they very definitely affirmed Christian values. Mm-hmm. Uh, they, their, their moral outlook was the same one that, that we would have. And uh, so the debates centered around, you know, things that were much more nuanced. And so, again, with the abortion issue, when does life begin? Does it begin at conception or, uh, you know, as uh, when, when Roe was first decided, um, the question was over something called quickening. That yes. is to say, when a, you, you're very familiar with this because you've spoken on this many times, that, that it's when a child, say, begins to move in the, in the stuff. That's when it's, it's now kind of achieved sort of, you know, human status and, uh, and, and abortion, you know, shouldn't be permitted, you know, these types of debates. We are now, we are now at a place in the culture where, as I say, we have this, you know, absolute moral chaos. And, um, now the questions are questions like, what is a woman? Mm. It's no longer, you know, when does life begin or, you know, how do you know that Jesus is the only way or something like that? The questions are now, you know, can, can a woman have a penis? Uh, what, what is a woman? And these are, these are questions that are being taken seriously by intelligent, sometimes highly intelligent people. So the question, you know, becomes, how do we get here? How do we get to a place where a professor at, um, you know, Berkeley, uh, well, a lot of people say, well, Berkeley. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> but anyway, but where you have, um, you know, for instance, this past week, I, I think she's a, she's a professor at uh, um, UC Berkeley uh, Law School where she was arguing, you know, about, you know, that you really can't bring women into the conversation over abortion because that could be offensive to the um, you know the transgender crowd, and you're you're thinking, this is insanity. Yeah. How is it that you, who are highly intelligent, are borderline insane? How do we get to a place like that? And that's that's the part that's very confusing to a lot of people. Um, and uh, is it that they're simply lying? And in some cases, they are, just to confuse you, and they just want to. Um, I mean, for instance, you know, during the Supreme Court 
nomination process, does she really not know what a woman is? You know, when she's told that, she's she's pandering and she's trying to avoid um, a question. But there are a lot of people who really do take this stuff seriously. I mean, I was reading an article in the uh, in the Guardian. You know, the headline was J.K. Rowling. Is that how you say her name? Yes. J- I've never read any of those books. J.K. Rowling is wrong. A woman can have a penis. Now, this is being taken seriously. Or maybe it was in the Telegraph. I think it was in the Telegraph. Um, so that, you know, we're only just a, a few years away from when had a reporter gone to her editor and said, I'm thinking of an article like this with this kind of headline, she'd have been, she'd have been laughed out of his office. Right. You know, are you nuts? Nobody's going to take that seriously. But that's where we are in the culture. Now, my argument is that Romans 1, 18 through 32, explains how you get there. Yes. And how you end up with a culture of moral insanity. And it says that it begins, as we were saying in the previous segment, by suppressing the knowledge of God. Now, some are listening and going, so are you saying that all atheists are insane or will eventually you know, reach the point of insanity? No, that's not my point. Um, and I don't think that's Paul's point. Right. I think that um, many atheists... They don't believe in God, but they still broadly accept a Judeo-Christian worldview. In other words, their life kind of still presupposes that there are absolutes. You know, so that, for instance, Richard Dawkins, is, as uh, my friend John Lennox has uh, pointed out many times, Professor Richard Dawkins, you know, biologist, evolutionary biologist at Oxford University, um, emeritus now, I think, you know, Richard is is uh, well beyond retirement age, but Richard accepts that there are absolutes in science. So in other words, he accepts that the laws of thermodynamics that govern science, that they are real laws. He accepts that if, you know, if I pick up this phone and if I were to say to Richard, now, Richard, do you believe there's a God? No, I don't believe there's a God. And he would probably, he would say it with a, you know, an impressive English accent and, probably a little snarky, but, <laughs> but then if I said to him, do you believe that there are, you know, laws in the universe? I mean, if I drop this phone a hundred times, what's going to happen? He would say, well, it's going to fall a hundred times. I mean, he would say <laughs> it's the law of gravity will say that it's going to fall every single time. It's never going to levitate. It's never going to float up. It's never going to go in another direction. It will always fall, Larry, because there are laws. We as Christians believe, but yes, but to have laws, you have to have a lawgiver. Yes. You know, so where do the laws themselves come from? And that's a question he'll acknowledge he doesn't know the answer to. Now, of course, we do. Right. But the point being, Richard accepts there are there are there's still law. Paul is saying, when you have so actively suppressed belief in God to such a degree that you have accepted it in almost every corner of your life, it will lead to insanity. And this is actually uh, um, the argument, you know, um, that some have made, a French philosopher whose name I suddenly can't remember, uh, regarding Friedrich Nietzsche. Now, when I was a kid, again, strange kid, (laughs) I, uh, I was a kid who loved Alabama football, I loved to fight. Um, I loved any sport that was violent. 
and I loved reading philosophy. So I know this is strange, <laughs> um, but I uh, I was reading I was reading Friedrich Nietzsche. I thank God um, I was pulled back from the brink of that, but I was I went down a you know this kind of rabbit hole reading the philosophy of Friedrich Nietzsche, and um, because you know I was I was I was having a lot of questions about whether uh, I never really seriously entertained atheism uh, because I just never found it morally tenable. Excuse me, well not morally tenable either, but intellectually tenable. Yeah. That there was no God, yeah. there was no higher power. I mean, that, that just makes no sense. That everything came from nothing; it spontaneously generated. You get something from nothing. That that didn't make sense to me as a kid, and it doesn't make sense to me now. But I did have questions about whether there was a personal God. So I kind of settled into a a sort of deism. There's a higher power. We were all created by something. Um, but I don't know if he really cares about me. Um, or not. I don't know if there's really purpose um, in my life. And reading Nietzsche was no help to that insofar as Nietzsche, you know, basically says to you, there's no purpose in, 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 in your life. But Nietzsche went insane. The German philosopher, uh, he went insane. And if you're not sure, and I'm going straight off the top of my head, I think he was born in 18, 1844, and I think he died in 1900. So, um, Anyway, second half of the, the 20th century is where he's writing stuff like the gay science and thus spake Zarathustra and uh, this kind of thing and uh, you know declaring that God is dead. But Nietzsche seems to me as an example of this because it that, that ideology, he had thought on it so long and had come to believe it and you know, as we were saying earlier, saying to himself again and again, there is no God, there is no God, there is no God, whack-a-mole with, uh, you know, with that, that law that's written on his heart to such a point that his conscience becomes seared. You know, God's voice becomes smaller and smaller, fainter and fainter and fainter. And, um, and he went insane. Now, some have said that Friedrich Nietzsche went insane because of, uh, of syphilis. There's no evidence to support that that I know of. That's just a that's just the answer that's often often given. I think that he went insane because Nietzsche Nietzsche had reached a place where, and this is what Paul is warning, that he says, claiming to be wise, they became fools and exchanged the glory of the immortal God for images resembling mortal man and birds and animals and reptiles. Mm. And then he goes on to say, they exchanged the truth about God for a lie. Yes. When you look at, you know, some guy out there, and I I haven't met any actually personally, you know, you would get the impression from the media they're all around us. Um, but I haven't, off the top of my head anyway, I haven't met any men who claim to be women or any women who claim to be men. I mean, I've been in the presence of, uh, uh, unfortunately, of, you know, of, of, of people who are, you know, living some very strange lifestyles, but I've not had that conversation with anyone. But when you encounter someone like that, who isn't, let's say, mentally deficient in the sense of, um, you know, this is a person who suffered a car accident and they, you know, have brain damage. What what would be your reaction to that? You know, if, if if I'm saying to you, but Amy Beth, I am a woman. 
<laughs> I mean, I think you'd have to ask with a beard. How, how do you, with a beard. I would have to ask, how do you know? Because yeah. don't you first have to know what because a woman is to know way. a woman and a man? I mean, you know, I'm feeling my Shania Twain side, you know, <laughs> feel like a woman. You know, I have to say this, yeah. that, that commercial, that, 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 Song, I don't, I haven't heard it lately, but it just hits different now, doesn't it? It does. I feel like a woman. I feel like <laughs> it a woman. Does. And what's funny is when that song came out maybe two decades ago, I remember, I think it was a Nissan commercial where it shows, do you remember yes, this? Yes, I do. It shows that song is playing as a bunch of guys like on a fishing trip or something. And one guy is singing it and all the other guys kind of turn and look at him like, hey, what is wrong with you? Could you imagine if they no. ran that commercial now? No, I can't. People would go nuts, you know, over over that commercial. But that commercial was brilliant. If I'm at Nissan, I say bring it back. Nissan, please, <laughs> please bring it back. Please bring that commercial back. It it might actually offer some kind of moral anchor in this bizarre universe. But you would think he's messed up. Yeah, it's messed up. Like, what's wrong? What what, what is, happened to you? What what broke you so badly mm-hmm. that you are now adopting this kind of bizarre proposition? Well. Paul is saying that this is what happens. He says, first, they suppress the knowledge of God. And I think, by the way, I, I want to give credit where credit is due here. I think it's Kent Hughes, who is, uh, I believe, a pastor, and he wrote a, a commentary on Romans that I think is terrific. And this, this is my words. It's not his. He's talking about um, Aquinas. And Thomas Aquinas, uh, I'll put it this way. Thomas Aquinas, you know, says that that God made animals all flesh, no spirit. He made angels all spirit, no flesh. And he made man a composite of both. We are a composite of spirit and flesh. And therefore, says Aquinas, we can ascend to the higher, that is to say, to the spiritual, to the godly, or can we can descend to the animal. And right now, what we are seeing in America is you are seeing, because there has been such a, such a suppression of the truth of God, which not only gives us moral anchor, it gives us rational yes, anchor. Yes. And when you suppress it to the extent that Nietzsche did, to the extent that our culture is uh, an aggressive atheism, then you become untethered from reality. You lose any propos- no proposition is too absurd to entertain. And you begin descending towards the animal. And so what Paul is arguing here is he says that uh, you eventually reach a place where God gives you up. Yes. A terrifying place. Terrifies me. When uh we were uh when I was a little kid um I've often, <laughs> uh, I've often. There are a lot of guys who are listening who will relate to this. I, I've often been bold enough to try all kinds of stuff, and we uh, we had a horse. We had an unbroken horse, and um, at five, I decided I'm riding this thing. <laughs> <laughs> okay. Not in what's very funny, actually, and I uh, when I think about this, show how parenting is very different these days. My mom's like, okay. So um, she sets me on time. We, we didn't have, you know, proper reins, bridle, none of that stuff. So I dig my hands, you know, into the mane of that horse, and my mom lets go. And that, that, that horse's name was Belle. 
and she went, you know, um, you know, when you're in the stable, you know, you could, you could kind of control her just a little bit, but once she got out into the open, there was no controlling her. And I had no, you know, a lot of the times the way you control the horse is with your legs. Mm -hmm. You know, you, people don't realize that, that, that horseback riding is quite physical because your, your legs and not just spurring a horse, but kind of squeezing a horse a little bit to, to indicate what it is that you want. And of course, you know, I'm sitting up there with my feet, you know, (laughs) just like this and hanging on. And, um, needless to say, um, she bucked me off and I, you know, probably went, um, I probably didn't exceed that height in the air until I was hit by a car. And then, wow. and then, I mean, she, she really knocked me, uh, into the air and I came down and my chin was all bloody. I have a nice Harrison Ford scar, you know, underneath, underneath this uh, this beard of mine, um, because she split open my uh, the skin. Not I didn't break any bones, but I was just bleeding, you know, severely. Now, the Lord taught me a good lesson from that. Uh, one is uh, have a proper bridle and in uh, this kind of thing before you um, attempt that. But the second thing. Um, that I've never forgotten is I've often it, that that episode entered into my prayers fairly regularly, still does, really? meaning it made a deep impression on my life. Uh, where I often pray, Lord, don't let go. Whatever I do, please hold on to me. Yes, please hold on. Please yes. restrain me. Um, and so I think of my mother letting go of the reins. And when I read here, in, uh, it's interesting. It's um, verses 24, 26, and 28. Uh, it says three times, God gave them up, God gave them up, God gave them up. Do you, now, do you think Paul is trying to hammer home a point? And whenever I read that, every time I read that, I remember as a five-year-old my mom letting go of the reins. And Belle, who was previously calm, but the moment she was loose and she knew she was loose and she knew I could not control her, she was like she was shot out of a cannon. And she was, you know, it, it, it's a scene out of, you know, PBR, you know, <laughs> professional bull riding and um, a bronc riding in this case. And, uh, and, and the consequences were severe. And, and what Scripture is telling us here is that God let them go. And there was this kind of a, a process of letting go. He lets them go, a, a little bit of rain. He lets them go, a little bit more rain. And then he finally says, have it your way. That's terrifying. And so for me, I always say, God, I'm a sinner. I've done, I've done some things I'm, I'm so ashamed of. Please hold on to me. Right. But when you're an atheist, you don't believe God is there. You're not making those kind of prayers. And you suppress belief in God so actively, you've assaulted the very image of God, that God eventually reaches a place where he says, I'm no longer hanging on, and you're going to reap the consequences of the sinful decisions that you've made. Mm. And then when you have reaped those those awful uh, consequences, then where do you turn if there is no God for you? Wow. Um, Yes, and it can reach such an awful place in life. I mean, here, first of all, he says, I think of it like this, these three God gave them up verses. I think of them as it working like this. This whole passage to me, at the top end of the passage, in verse 18, Mm -hmm. 
you're you're anchored. Yes. You're, you think of yourself as being in a boat, and you're on a you're you're on a fast moving river, and then it says they suppress the truth of God. So you weigh anchor. You know you lift the anchor. So now you're starting to flow down downstream because you've suppressed belief in God. So now you're starting to move downstream, and then it says you suppress the truth, and now you're starting to exchange the truth of God for a lie. And it says in verse 24. God gave them up. So now we're going over a waterfall. Mm. So God gave them up. And what comes after that? He says, the dishonoring of their bodies among themselves because they exchanged the truth about God for a lie and they worshiped and served the, the creature rather than the creator. So here he's indicating animal worship. Yes, now, are we doing that in the culture? 100%. Yes. I, I think about the turtle eggs on the beach. We've been there before where, you know, it, it's a whole ceremony oh. uh, for the turtles and they're marked and they're flagged and I have a child who's a wildlife biologist. So we care about the turtles, but they but worship it's a them. It's a turtle. It's a turtle. And most of them will not make it to the water, but there's a big penalty if you touch the turtle nest. Oh, gosh. I saw on Twitter this past week... Someone had posted this image of this sea turtle coming up uh, on the surf. It was, it was pretty amazing. It was, a, it was a huge sea turtle. And it sees people on the beach, and it turns around, and it goes back out. And it says, you know, the turtle, this poor turtle, he realizes that human beings are awful too. Now, isn't this fascinating to me? Oh, man. This is fascinating. On the one hand, you have people like this who think nothing of destroying a human egg. Right. Uh, that is to say, a human embryo a human being, but you will go to jail uh, and receive a huge fine. I think it's quarter of a million dollars if you just if you disturb an, uh, a bald eagle's egg. If you are if you are trafficking in eagle feathers, you, bald eagle feathers, you can go to jail jail for that. But the government will put a boat, a ship off of the coast of Alabama, yes, so that you can go and get an abortion there. Imagine. This is where we are. So he says, God gave me this. So you go over the first waterfall and it says um, that they're worshiping and serving the creature rather than the creator. Right. So that's the first waterfall. Now you're moving even rapidly downriver. Mm -hmm. So we've weighed anchor. Um, God's given, uh, God gave them up. You go over the first waterfall, but you just keep going. In, in, in other words, the worship of animals isn't as bad as it's going to get on this river. The next thing we come to, it says, God gave them up again, verse 26. And this time he says, to dishonorable passions, for their women exchange natural relations for those that are contrary to nature, and men likewise gave up natural relations with women and were consumed with passion for one another." This is this is actually a very important homosexuality. Yeah. This is this is what he's what he's saying. Homosexuality and um, the sexual chaos that comes. I will often hear Christians say this, and they're well intentioned when they say it. They're trying to be very compassionate. They will say that homosexuality is a sin like any other, and we just need to accept that it's a sin like any other. And I'll hear somebody usually say it something like this. They'll say, you know, I did some things that you know. Um, you know, sexually that I'm not proud of. Um, and, uh, you know, homosexuality is really no different than that. No, it is. It is. Uh, homosexuality is an assault on the image of God. There's, I want to be clear, you can be forgiven of that sin. But homosexuality um, is much more serious 
Because there are sins that while sinful, they're not contrary to nature. Yes. And this is what Paul is saying here. In, in other words, in the Old Testament, where we see polygamy, um, God allowed it. It was sinful, you know, for David to have, I think, seven wives and, you know, uh, Solomon hundreds and, you know, uh, hundreds of concubines. God allowed it. It was sinful, but it wasn't contrary to nature, you see. Homosexuality, by, by contrast, Paul is saying here, God gave them up to their dishonorable passions for their women exchanged natural relations with men. And, uh, and men likewise gave up natural relations with women to do shameful things with men, uh, the dishonoring of their bodies. So he says that the second thing that will happen, the, the, the first the first thing that happens in, in a culture that's starting to go off the rails is, one, they suppress the truth of God. Second is they pervert the truth of God. And the way they do this is they begin to worship animals. And that doesn't necessarily mean we're setting up a creature and people are bowing down to it. But in some sense in our culture, we are um, worshiping animals in that we are, you know, a, an organization like PETA wants to observe them their rights in court and, you know, this kind of stuff. It's, 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 it's utter insanity. It's moral chaos. And where you're elevating, you know, animal rights while simultaneously de-elevating uh, a human life. Right. So this is what happens. Well, and also might I say right here that this is also why it's important for Bible believing children who are in school with this insanity in programs across the country, we've got to take those parts of our culture back or at least be yes. the sane person in the insanity to say, <laughs> we do appreciate the animals. We will not worship those yep. animals. Um, I think that was something that, you know, our daughter has that perspective, obviously, but it's so important for parents not to shy away from this and that when we see it in culture, we race toward it and say, no, here, let me tell you the truth about this. Yes. Uh, I think that's critical. Yeah, no, I'm with you. It's one of the things I liked about it. It's been years ago when it came out, but I liked Madagascar. Yes. Uh, was that Pixar? It was great. I mean, which now I think is owned by Disney, but uh, which is, is corrupt to its core. But the, one of the things I liked about um, Madagascar, the, the children's cartoon, and, and adults will enjoy it too, is that it was making fun of the whole Lion King circle of life. <laughs> idea that we're all in this circle of life and isn't it magical and wonderful and in madagascar the theme is you know these these all these animals <laughs> at the hysterical. zoo they they want to be out and in the moment they get out that you have this funny scene where like a duck is going along and then an alligator comes up and, <laughs> and eats it yep. and they're starting to realize you know the circle of life is really a circle of death yes uh, so madagascar i thought was quite witty in making fun of that in the reality and i I think that, um, I, I believe that that this is partially what the Lord was teaching the children of Israel with the with the animal sacrifices. They they didn't actually those sacrifices didn't forgive any sin. It's all looking forward yes. to the Lamb who would come. You know the person of Jesus. But it was a constant reminder to them they are animals. That's right. They're not the same as human beings. And while this is very hard for you, it is important for you to understand. I, you can't spend a few minutes with me without knowing that I love my dog. Right. 
I love my dog who is a little spoiled. You know, Lori said to me the other day, you know, he is spoiled. You do spoil him. I'm like, no, no, I don't. <laughs> but I, but I, I, I like my dog. Yeah, we do too. But at the like end of the dogs. day, he, he, I hope he's not listening. But at the end of the day, <laughs> he is a dog. That's right. He is a dog. He is not on the same level as of, of human life. He doesn't belong on the same level of, of, of human life. And while the loss of a pet, I had somebody, you know, uh, say to me this past week that they had lost a dog they'd had for a very long time and had shed tears over that. I get it. Boy, do I get it. Absolutely. That's, that's hard. But. Perspective. Perspective. Order. It's not human life. And by the way, I'll also throw this in. I think those animals that, that Hugh Ross, the astrophysicist, you know, uh, <laughs> Hugh once, I remember him telling me, you know, um, he, he had given this lecture that I didn't wholly agree with, but it was an interesting point called soul-ish animals. And what he meant by that was that, that there are animals that God has clearly created to be companions to man. Not in the way that Eve, you know, or a woman right. was was meant to be, you know, a, a, a companion to um, to Adam, to man, but that they're meant to be complementary. So that a dog, for instance, is, you know, you can have a you can have a relationship of of sorts, you know, with a dog. You can't really, as Siegfried and Roy discovered, with um, a Bengal tiger. You know what I mean? I mean, a, 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 a horse. Right. A horse, you can develop, you know, they are meant to be, there are certain animals that are meant to be domesticated and useful. God created them to be useful to human beings. And part of that is to teach, I think, um, people, children in particular. You know, I remember my my first dog getting hit by a car and I was devastated to see her little body laying in the road, uh, blood flowing from her head. And I sobbed. Yes. I sobbed. Um, I, I built like a little memorial in my room to my little dog. I went trying to find all kinds of pictures of my little dog. In some ways, the Lord, I think, prepares us for more significant loss and Great. reminds us with animals, animals can teach us to care for something beyond ourselves. And if you're somebody who lives alone, having an animal can be very healthy for you because right. you have to think about something other than yourself. Oh, I have to feed him, have to let him out, have to give him some water, you know, have to train him, you know, that, that sort of thing. But anyway, here, what the Apostle Paul is telling us is you you suppress the, the truth of God, you eventually distort it, and you distort it by... Um, that leads you to a place where you eventually worship animals yep. rather than having the proper perspective as we've just discussed. And then secondly, you will you will move towards homosexuality and towards great sexual perversion. Mm. Not just sexual sin, but sexual perversion. There's a difference. And then thirdly, he says again, and then in verse 28, he says, and since they did not see fit to acknowledge God, God gave them up to a debased mind. Now, this is the final stage of total depravity in a culture. Suppress the knowledge of God, worship animals, sexual uh, uh, perversion, and, uh, homosexuality and sexual perversion. And then finally, God lets go of the reins completely. The horse is out of the stable. It is bucking wildly. There's no control whatsoever. And God gives you over to a debased mind mind. And that that's what leads us to the title of this episode, um, Chaos Theory, Moral Chaos Theory. 
How is it that we get to a place where, as we said at the top of the show, a man can think that he's a woman or a woman can think that she's she's a man. And, and before long, you'll have people claiming that they're animals and things of this nature. I think I've actually already seen a few headlines that make reference to that, a, a little boy thinking that he's a wolf and that they're affirming that in school. Yeah, you be that. You be that wolf. Oh, oh, it's yeah. real. Yes. This is real. This concept of dressing up and you're a furry. Yeah. And oh, so you've seen this. Oh, I was talking to a, a young girl who is in middle school this week in a middle school in this area that she said, notice the irony, if I am out of dress code, I will get sent home or sent to the office. But if somebody shows up dressed like a wolf or dressed like a cat or dressed like a dog, they're allowed to stay dressed, even though they're out of dress code. This is insane. Yeah, I cannot even begin to tell you the ways I, as a child, would have absolutely used this for more pranks than I can think of. Can you even imagine? Yes, I, I would have had... I would have absolutely wielded this in some way to get out of school. Of course you would have. I mean, and who wouldn't? I, I would I mean, have. I think my, my teachers are absolutely <laughs> insane. So today I'm going to claim that I'm a bear hibernating and that I had to stay home. <laughs> <laughs> but this is but it's, it's this is where we find also. ourselves. Yes. So the the you you get ultimately to a place where you become unhinged, completely untethered from um, rationality, and that's because God has let go of the reins for the last time where you are now turned over, says Scripture, to a debased mind. Now you're, now you're at, that, at, at the absolute depths of depravity and where, as, as, as I said earlier, no proposition becomes too absurd I think of it like this. I would have 10 years ago said it would be like a man claiming to be a woman. But since since now that's kind of off the table, it would be something like this. That for whatever reason, the powers that be decide, perhaps just to prove their power over the population, as they do with things like mask mandates and, and whatnot, they, um, they say, walking on your hands makes good sense. And initially, there's people who are saying, walking on your hands. And then we see a complicit media um, saying, um, you know, we, we see headlines saying, all the road scholars who walked on their hands, presidents who walked on their hands, the health benefits of walking on your hands. And we're starting to see it everywhere. Yes. And soon, people you know are telling you, you know, I, I, I've given up Pilates. Uh, today I'm going to the walk on your hands class. And you're going, you're not really falling for this, are you? Uh, and then you're at the mall one day and you and your daughter go, there goes somebody walking on their hands. <laughs> right. And then you begin seeing signage all over the place. And then you begin to see restaurants that say, we, we, we have tables that are lower, you know, for people who walk on their hands. And before long, you, you hit a place like New York or L.A., and they're all over the place. Crazies are live on the, the coasts. I'm sorry. I feel sorry for you people who live in those places. You, you live with freaks of nature in, 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 uh, uh, in, in those parts of our country. But anyway, it would be like that. And that's what has happened here. Men can be women. 
No, they can't. Nobody takes that seriously. But you start to see a few headlines here or there. You start to see a few people dressing like that. And then before long, it's being mainstreamed. So this is, this is what Paul is telling us. When you've reached the place of a debased mind, he says, you will do what ought not to be done. Mm-hmm. I, I, That's where you go. It is exactly where you go. So let's press pause right there. And come back to finish up because I have a couple of questions, but this is this is critical. And, and let me let me just say this: I am wearing a burgundy shirt today. <laughs> <laughs> we'll be right back. This is the Larry Alex Taunton Show. The opinions expressed here do not reflect those of. Democrats, atheists, Muslim radicals, environmentalists, globalists, socialists, the United Nations, the World Economic Forum, soccer fans, or men who eat quiche. But they should. So as we wrap up today, what are key takeaways that you want our listeners to know? Well, just before the break, I made a, 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 a little joke that people listening, or, or particularly people watching, um, because they would see the the shirt that I'm wearing, but I had said that I'm wearing a burgundy shirt. And off air, what what you people out there don't know is that um, the shirt that I'm wearing, um, my wife uh, decided from the last show. She said, you know, you you you're wearing you're a white man with white hair wearing a white shirt. You, you need another shirt. So she took me out and uh, she got me this shirt, which I am told is um, is navy blue. It's navy. But you see, I am colorblind, severely colorblind, and the shirt to me, particularly on the monitor, I would swear it is burgundy. But you guys keep telling me that, of course, it's not. Now, there's actually kind of a spiritual lesson in here. And part of that is that the way I perceive the world, a colorblindness distorts that for me, okay? So I, what I think I see, because there are three wavelengths of light, my eyes can only perceive two of them. I know there's a third wavelength of light, not because I've actually experienced it. At no point in my life have I, you know, people say to me, well, describe what you see. And I'm like, well, you know, describe how it's different. I don't know how it's different. I don't know what you see. I have no idea what you see. Um, so I, I know there's a third wavelength of light because people I trust, people like you, people like my wife, tell me that there is a third wavelength of light. They tell me, you are wearing a navy blue shirt. Now, I cannot perceive that. So I see you sparking. I cannot see that. <laughs> I have to trust that, right. that I'm not dressed as a clown. Right. Um, but oftentimes, you know, I have to be, you know, so my ties and all these things have to be picked out because I could show up looking, you know, like I'm, I'm you know, the, the, uh, my eyes are attracted to very loud colors. <laughs> I love really, really bright colors. And I guess because I can sort of see them then. But the spiritual parallel that I would draw here is this, is that there there are, are those that as a result of suppressing the truth of God, belief in God, reality becomes so distorted for them that they no longer can perceive which way is up, which way is down. And... Um, to, to just kind of close with a with a little um, example, it's it's interesting when I was um, was being certified as a as a diver as a scuba diver, 
they, the, the teacher I had was kind of an interesting guy. He was always putting you in these chaotic situations. <laughs> Why? I don't know. Maybe it just made him more. Or, but he would, he would take you under, under, you know, deep underwater and would come up behind you and shut off your, your oxygen. Right. Just to see how you'd react. <laughs> oh my gosh. <laughs> but well. he would, but he would tell you, I'm going to do this. You know, he would, he would warn you, I'm going to do this and you need to know what to do. Okay, because this is this is a, these things happen, and I'm sure it's because he would be out with groups and somebody wasn't monitoring their gauge and they ran out of oxygen and they panic, not knowing what to do. And of course, what you do is you go to someone next to you and you indicate that you don't have oxygen. You lock arms and then we exchange a regulator, you know, between us and we ascend. Uh, versus just absolutely panicking and then you can drown. But another thing he would do is he would disorient you. He would get you into utter darkness or inside of a ship or a cave or something like that, and you're completely disoriented. And he would say, now you have to orient. You go, you go inside of a cave above ground, and if you get lost, you're spelunking, you're not going to run out of oxygen. But in cave diving, you might have 20 minutes. You might have 10. You might have five. So how do you orient? And when you have neutral buoyancy in the water... Sometimes, unless you can see real well, you're not sure which way up is up or down. The way you orient is, do you know? You I, look for the bubbles. Wow. Because bubbles, because of the law of nature, sure. they always go up. Yeah. Bubbles never go sideways. They never go down. When you are breathing through your regulator, your bubbles are always going to go up. So if you're, if you're disoriented under the water and you're thinking that's the way to go up, you watch those bubbles or they're going this way and you go, nope, that's the way I have to go. So they help orient you. Paul is arguing that God is, <laughs> to refer to our organization, your fixed point. Your fixed point. If you don't have that, Blaise Pascal, from whom I took the name of the, uh, the organization, Blaise Pascal says, the harbor serves as a fixed point for those who are on ship or a star or the coast. You, you only way you know you're moving is because you can look at that fixed point. Have you ever had that, that sensation yes. you're not moving, but you look at something that's fixed and you go, oh, wow, I'm drifting. Or my car, you thought your car was rolling back and it's actually the car next to you that's moving forward. Yes. And then you had a higher fire hydrant. But... <laughs> um, so it is in morality. And he says there, there has to be a fixed point in morality. Otherwise, you won't perceive you're moving when you are. So Paul is telling us once you suppress belief in God, you start a, a drift. And then the drift just picks up pace. You're just going faster and faster and faster. And you're moving towards a debased mind, and you go after waterfall after waterfall after waterfall until you've reached total depravity. So we have to have, we need God to orient. We need those bubbles. We need that. We need that star, uh, the North Star. We need um, a, a harbor. We need something we can see on shore to perceive where we are. And as a culture right now, because we've so suppressed belief in God, we are now moving rapidly through everything we're seeing here. So I would just end by saying this is. Romans 1, it is the explanation to the moral chaos we see in the culture. And it is a uh, sobering, sobering explanation. Uh, but it's also, for the believer, it also probably will help us as we speak with our unbelieving friends or people who have questions. Yeah. 
So I very much appreciated that article. I appreciate the explanation and exposition. Um, And so I hope you all enjoyed that as well. Thank you for joining us today. We sincerely look forward to seeing you next time. Turn out the lights. The party's over. (laughs) They say that all. Ladies and gentlemen, we are grateful for the standing ovation, but there will be no encore for today's performance. Please exit the building in an orderly fashion. Thank you. Honey, can we leave now?